Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Monica, what got you thinking about constitutional amendments? Uh, Well, I was thinking about a recent former president and who is also running for office this year. And I just was really shocked in in a sense by how we have so few protections to bulwark our democracy in terms of who can run for office and potentially win. So as I was thinking about the 14th Amendment being kind of the only option we have that could keep potentially keep someone off a ballot, I started thinking that that couldn't be the only possible thing. I went down the Google rabbit hole and I was so surprised. I was really surprised by the information I found. And I thought, well, if this is surprising to me, maybe it's surprising to other people. That's Monica Lewinsky producer, social activist, and Vanity Fair contributing editor. Her new article for Vanity Fair is titled, We the People Demand More Amendments. And I'm Brian Stelter. Let me welcome you to Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. On today's show, we're going inside, fixing our Constitution. And that's why our other guest is Neil Katyal, the former Solicitor General of the United States, a professor at Georgetown Law School, and host of the Courtside Podcast. Welcome, Neil. Thank you. And Neil, you're quoted in Monica's piece. So Monica, how did the two of you connect? Uh, well, we met twenty about 25 years ago now, 24, 25 years ago. Neil had asked me to come speak to his class, his constitutional law class. And I said, yes. Yeah. And let me put a little more meat on that. Um, I was teaching a class actually called Clinton <laughs> during the Clinton impeachment about all the different issues in Clinton's, uh, you know, actions. There were a variety of different people who came, including Ken Starr during the impeachment and Lindsey Graham and Plato Kacharis, uh, the lawyer. Every week I had a different guest, but I had one big, huge, hopeful ask, which was I cold asked Monica through her lawyer, Plato, whether she would come to the class. And she did, right in the height of the controversy. I mean, this is someone who couldn't go literally anywhere without being mobbed by cameras. We kept the whole thing a secret. She showed up. And I have never seen 100 students so riveted because she was so articulate, so human, so legally sophisticated, even though, you know, you were only, what, 20 years old or something. I remember in chilling terms, you talked about your mom being forced to testify and how she, you know, almost killed herself. She was just like having such a difficult time reconciling her obligations under the law to tell the truth with your obligations as a parent. And you talked about a parent-child privilege for testimony. And I don't think any of us in that room could ever forget that hour and a half that you spent with us because you were just magnificent. It's always been a privilege to know you ever since that moment. Thanks, Neil. Um, That's very, very kind. And Neil went on also to um, 
write one of my letters of recommendation when I applied for graduate school to the London School of Economics. And um, he did so at a time when many people (laughs) didn't like me or wouldn't have, um, it kind of wasn't kosher, kosher to like me. So (laughs) I was very (laughs) grateful and certainly helped me get in, which is great. I know this is the best way to introduce guests I've ever heard. Uh, Because in the article, Monica, you described Neil as your pal. But I had no idea why. Uh, so, so now we know the roots. And it's amazing thinking about you trying to fix our broken system, right? What's broken about our government after that system nearly destroyed you 25 years ago. Does it feel that way to you? Or do you feel a connection between those two things? Um, I think that there's, I think for me, it it really is about looking forward in that sense. I'm sure that you know, if you were a psychologist instead of a journalist, Brian, we we might be uncovering some other uh, connections there. But I think that really it's been about this sort of forward movement. Um, well, actually, I'm going to backtrack on myself because I thought about it when I saw the answers of um, other people suggesting amendments that they that they would add. And one surprised me. Why hadn't I thought about this was sort of a, a real true right to privacy. And so that's certainly something that I felt I didn't have protected uh, 25 years ago. So it's, right. I, I do have that, that sense of connection and kind of, it should have been easier for me to be able to figure out whether or not my constitutional rights had been violated back then. And it mm. wasn't so easy to figure out. It wasn't clear cut, but mm. yeah, I just, I'm really curious. I mean, I'm just curious as to, or or the article came from a place of being curious of how did we end up in a place where we didn't have more protections for the kinds of times we're in Mm -hmm. now and curious about, you know, is there anything we can fucking do (laughs) as people, like citizens of this country? Right. Well, and you list uh, six modest proposals, six possible amendments. Neil, give us the context before we go through them one by one. Uh, f- for much of our history, you know, this country was adding amendments, perfecting these documents every 10, 20 years, right, Neil? When, when did we stop? Why have we stopped adding amendments? Well, I wouldn't say we stopped. It's always been really hard to add amendments. Article 5 of the Constitution says you need to have a supermajority in the state legislatures and in the U.S. Congress to amend the Constitution. So, as Monica points out in her sixth one, we don't even have an equal rights amendment. We don't even have something saying women are equal to men. It was tried. It couldn't get enough uh, states behind it. Maybe it will. I sure hope it will. But Constitution, our founders, by design in part, made it hard to amend. I mean, we had the Bill of Rights right away, four years after the Constitution. So you got the first 10 amendments. We've only had 17 amendments since that time. So it's 27 in total. Part of it is because of a kind of Burkean idea that we shouldn't actually have too much change. But another part of it is just, you know, this whole idea that the law is going to protect us, which I know is animating Monica's proposal is, you know, not in the end true. I mean, and James Madison said this in the Federalist Papers. He said, look, this is just parchment barriers. Mere parchment barriers was the phrase he used. You could always have some strong man come in and just suspend it. And so I agree with Monica's proposals in general, things like, you know, trying to restrain the pardon power or whatever. But ultimately, what's your remedy if you can have a president who's going to blow that off and is going to appoint judges who will let him blow it off. Um, at some point, it's just paper. Right. Paper. Yeah. 
It's, um, hmm. you know, I think also too, for me, what I tried to do with the piece was to not let my personal politics color what I was going to propose, because the truth is, is that for any change to happen, this is going to have to be a bipartisan effort. So that felt really important to me in what I was looking at, too. Yeah. And I would say also, I think one of the things I love about your piece is you're calling for these constitutional reforms, but you're also calling for a kind of change in our culture to bring attention to these issues. So even if the parchment can't solve the problem in the end, a greater attention to hey, do we really want a president to be above the law and be able to pardon himself? Hey, do we really want to have a world in which state legislatures can outright flatly ban abortion or the National Congress can to take it away from every woman in this country? I mean, these are really important to discussions to have, not just as a legal matter, but as a cultural matter. You mentioned pardons. And Monica, the first one on your list is about pardons. Uh, Tell us why presidents should not be able to pardon themselves. (laughs) Should be (laughs) self-evident. Um, but I mean, it, it really, you know, but um, <laughs> I, I, the whole point is that the president is not supposed to be above the law. If you cannot essentially be investigated or be held accountable for any of your actions as president, then what's the point of the system in many ways? Won't people hear that and think, oh, that's just about stopping Trump? No, <laughs> it's... um I mean, well, maybe. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I think I think that the thing is, is look, there's there's the lens that we have now, which that we're going to be looking at these kinds of things through, and th- that lens is going to be more narrowly focused on on our own political views at the moment. Whether you think that Trump is being rightly investigated or wrongly investigated, but it also It's also a wake-up call to the fact that we live in a world that we're examining through the lens of the Constitution written so long ago. And with us now seeing that there are these um, bumps, I think that we need to be addressing them. Yeah, and that's what makes this so interesting. Neil, we have to think about all these proposals, not through a prism just of our current politics. All of these have to be viewed through politics, what, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now. Yeah, that's 100% right. And like, if we were to take Monica's first proposal about the pardon power, I mean, which shouldn't actually matter who the president is. It's just that someone like Donald Trump brings this constitutional issue to the forefront because he's a serial criminal. You know, 20 years ago, uh, someone wrote an article in the Yale Law Journal called Pardon Me, a Professor Brian Colt, um, which is about, hey, wouldn't it interesting question, can a president pardon himself? And he basically made the point, which I think is right, that even though the Constitution doesn't expressly prohibit the president from pardoning himself, it's such a violation of the most fundamental norms of our society that no person is above the law, that a person can't be a judge in their own case. And so in a way, you'd think that Monica's proposal is superfluous because we shouldn't need it. It's a pretty obvious thing. But when you have someone come along like Donald Trump, who wants to throw out the rule book, in fact, you know, campaigns on such ideas, it's at that point that you need to start thinking about these kinds of systemic proposals that Monica's putting forth. Well, here's another one 
uh, the I wouldn't think we would need. Uh, Monica, you point out that uh, when when someone's running for president, you know, elected president, they don't go through the process of having a yeah. government background check to obtain a security. You know the way that someone does. Well, the the way that the way that uh you know so many government employees do. So tell us why this um, came to the top of your mind. Well, because I think it's bananas. I, I mean, the idea that the people who are exposed <laughs> to the most sensitive have the ability to be, you know, to have access and are exposed to the most sensitive information that, you know, not only protects our country, but also protects the lives of people who are um, out gathering intelligence is just, is bonkers. Um, and for me, I had this very personal experience that I write about in the piece of when I was uh, uh, going through the application process for my security clearance, both when I was, um, I think it was the, the, the just the background check of becoming an intern. And then when I moved to the Pentagon, my boss was the Pentagon spokesman. So I had to be able to have access to everything that crossed my desk to, to go to him, including you know, security clearance for things that the name of that security is in fact secret. Um, that you can't even say the, the name of it. Um, so I couldn't believe that a president or that members of Congress or Supreme Court justices would not have to be scrutinized at that same level. And I think when we look at what's happening with, you know, George Santos, like that's, you, we really, um, we really need to be reevaluating what what we have allowed uh, to to be the norm based on the interpretation from mm. from so long ago from different intentions. And if I could just jump in for a moment, um, I had the privilege of serving as national security advisor at the Justice Department, and what Monica's saying is a hundred percent right. I mean, bonkers understates it. I mean, all of us had to go through the most intense imaginable security clearance processes that you could ever dream up um, in order to get access to that information. And then someone like Donald Trump comes along with none of that clearance, um, none of that background. And it's not surprising. Look at how he treats classified information, you know, strewn all over his ballroom um, and the like. And, um, you know, this, these are a nation's really sensitive secrets. These are things that people have risked their lives to get. And the idea that to be treated cavalierly is unfathomable. So I'm 100% a supporter of her amendment here. Neil, I know you have to get to an appointment pretty soon. Let me just borrow a few more minutes of your time because we have some more amendments to get to. I bet you support number three also. It's pretty simple. The Constitution cannot be suspended. Full stop. I, I do. But again, I think that you get into that whole question of what a parchment barrier is. So the Constitution says it can't be suspended. What do you do when it's suspended? You know, um, uh, it's uh, it's good. It's going to require a change in norms, not just in what the words on the paper say. And, and Monica, that, that one was inspired by uh, what Mike Pence on the yes. GOP debate yes, stage. Exactly. So I um, watched the first Republican debate and I was I hadn't really thought about that aspect of it. Maybe that had been in the press at the time around January 6th, but it was, uh, it just landed with me in, in, a, in a different way at that point too. Neil, before I let you go, what's the biggest challenge in passing any of these possibilities? Well, just the structural barriers that our founders put in Article 5 with the supermajority required in both the states and in the U.S. Congress. It makes it really hard to get Amendments that, frankly, most people would agree on, like the Equal Rights Amendment passed. 
So it's a source of enduring frustration. It's one reason why you see the courts, the Supreme Court, sometimes trying to update the Constitution when the text of the Constitution can't be changed quite so easily. Mm. Neil, thanks so much. Thank you. Real privilege to be with you. Bye, Neil. All right. Our thanks again to Neil for dropping by. But we have more amendments to talk about. We're going to go over the rest with Monica in just a moment. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. back here on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. I'm Brian Stelter, speaking with Monica Lewinsky about her new article proposing, which is our modest proposal, six new constitutional amendments. And number four is perhaps my personal favorite. Monica, this is about a retirement age for elected officials, as well as term limits. Uh, sketch out how this should work. Well, I think that, you know, that there are these age requirements, a certain age that you have to be, right? Your brain has to be fully maturated to be uh, in the House of Representatives at the age of 25. And um, Senator 30 can't run for president until 35. And so I just, I think that there needs to be um, a point at which we say, you're still valuable to society. You can still be a wonderful consultant, but maybe you shouldn't be running the country. I'm Gen X. Um, and so I just think about, you know, my, the people who were in my life who were Gen Z and what it would feel like, you know, or the alpha generation, even younger, what it would feel like to have the most powerful people in the country making these decisions about your future without having a lot of, um, without having a lot of like connective tissue, <laughs> not to say everybody who's, you know, in the, in the silent generation or the older boomers doesn't have connective tissue to the younger generations. But I think we can see a lot of different issues where there's such a generational divide. A hundred percent. There's so many people tired of this gerontocracy and it doesn't <laughs> have to be this way. It doesn't, this is not something that it has to be. Um, there can be reforms. And that's what I love about your piece in general. You're just, you're just helping us broaden our thinking about this. You know, look, as you point out, Mitt Romney graciously said, I'm too old for this. We need right. a younger generation. Right. Well, and I think we um, could probably maybe say this across the board. I don't Within democratic circles of people that I talk to, I know that there's also this feeling around um, just that we don't seem to have the pipeline for new candidates. You know, I'm very supportive of President Biden, but at the same time, in looking into the future of just even where are we having these these kinds of conversations, like with tension within our party of having new new candidates, and so some of what I think causes that problem is that we're that we're not turning over an, a new leaf and finding new people with new opportunities. Personally, I think that this was one that was going to go a little too far, and I didn't think could get bipartisan support necessarily. But I actually also am supportive of a one six-year term for president rather than two four-year terms. So um, hmm. I think that 
we might have better results. We might be getting more for our money as, as constituents um, if there weren't a reelection in between. Interesting. Interesting. One, one six year term, uh, much cleaner, I guess. <laughs> well, the first year, right. They're kind of getting in office, trying to figure out what the hell they're doing. Year two, they're doing stuff by year three. They're starting to think about reelection. Um, mm. And then year four is often about reelection. So I just sort of feel if we condense that, the only real far reaching concern we'd have would be around legacy. But that's me. I, I didn't put that in the article. So that's the bonus <laughs> if you listen to the podcast. Yeah, that is, that is a bonus. <laughs> but, you know, you're talking about what can get bipartisan support. Mm-hmm. Can number five really get bipartisan support? Number five is bye bye electoral college. It's time to go. Okay. So I. I initially thought that that would be the case, that it would be very divided along political lines. And I'm going to sort of go to the notes in my article, but I actually found statistics that suggested there is bipartisan support. While it may not be- And this is recent, by the way. This is a Pew study from earlier this year. 65% Mm -hmm. of American adults are ready to abandon the Electoral College. Yes. You studied the article very well. Um, Brian, A plus. But um, (laughs) so I think that there's, you know, it's- um, that I do think that this is something that we could start to have a national conversation around. And um, it just is, is this the best, the best way to elect our president? Can we try something new? And bringing it back around to our earlier conversation, you mentioned the Equal Rights Act earlier, and that's number Mm -hmm. six, right? Yes. I mean, I just, it's mind boggling to me that in 2023, this is an amendment that we still haven't been able to pass. And it's not necessarily at the heart of what we have experienced in the changes with Roe v. Wade. I do think that there is, there is that, that aspect of it that we're not seen to be able to be in charge of our own body. And I know that since you published this piece, you've heard from a lot of people with other or additional ideas. You mentioned those comments on social media. Which have popped in your head? Which ones have stood out the most? Um, Well, I thought, (laughs) lucky for you, I wrote them down. And so there was one was that I liked that was around that First Amendment speech should have like, should include what you can't say, sort of more around hate speech, guaranteed access to health care, what we uh, sort of just mentioned, term limits more representation on the Supreme Court and term limits on the Supreme Court, the Second Amendment repealed, term limits for all the branches, banning assault rifles and weapons, so Second Amendment issues. And one that I saw that was interesting was around publicly funded campaigns. Well, as as I'm sitting here listening, I'm thinking to myself, you know, you and I both have experience in the poisoned political and media environment. You know, your your life, my life, we've both been inside it. We've also observed it. And yet you're looking around thinking, how can we make this better? How can we make this more civil? How can we make this more uh, more palatable? How can we help people feel involved and not feel turned off by this political system? Yeah. Uh, I find that a little bit inspiring, actually. Oh, thanks. I think I consider myself really lucky um, because I think if I observe what some of the trajectory of my life has been, if I looked at it as an outsider, I could imagine someone who's gone through those experiences being pretty bitter and pretty negative about humanity and the future. And um, and I'm not. So maybe that's, I'm a little Pollyanna-ish, um, but I, I just really, I believe in the goodness of people. I believe that we can do better. 
we can all just wake up and hope to make it better for the next generation. And if you haven't read Monica's piece yet, check it out at VanityFair.com. This episode of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair is produced by Michael May. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our engineer is Jake Loomis. Mixing is by Bob Mallory. And I'm Brian Stelter. Thank you so much for listening. You can find me on Twitter and threads at Brian Stelter. And send me an email anytime, bstelter at gmail.com. Let us know what you want to hear and who you want to hear from on future episodes of the podcast. We'll be back next Thursday with more Inside the Hive. Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco that goes deep into the issues you care about. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Look, 2024 is going to get weird. Who decides when there's been an insurrection or not? We're still in the innovation phase of AI. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together. (laughs) But whatever happens this election year, the KQED politics team is in this with you. Political Breakdown. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.